Hey, just a heads up before we start that this is the second episode to a two-part interview. Part one of the interview is titled, Jay Jordan Navigated Incarceration with a Stutter, Now He's Transforming the Criminal Justice System. I would recommend you listen to part one first, but it's not necessary. In part one, we are introduced to Jay Jordan, who talks about what he needed to do to survive incarceration with a stutter, and describes a life-changing interaction that changed how he viewed his purpose and his stutter. We also talk about his biggest interview ever with Jon Stewart and how he prepared for that big moment. In part two, we will talk about Jay's outlook on his stutter and his work to destigmatize the narrative surrounding people with criminal records, something he has himself. It's also something that really reflects what I'm trying to do with Proud Stutter, shifting the narrative around stuttering so we're all accepted more in society. I'm Maya Chupkov, and I'm a woman who stutters. Welcome to Proud Stutter, a show about stuttering and embracing verbal diversity in an effort to change how we talk about it, one conversation at a time. So Jay, I wanted to kind of go back to what you had mentioned earlier in the interview about not having a lot of opportunities to talk about your stutter when you're doing a lot of your public speaking. So I guess I'm wondering, like, how open are you about your stutter in like the different spaces you're in, whether it be at work or with your friends? And did you, do you know a lot of other people who stutter? Yeah. So there's not, there's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of people in my life that I have that stutter. I mean, my kids obviously, and you know, I don't, I let them work through it. I don't, you know, I don't tell them to slow down. I don't tell them to stop. I don't finish it. I let them work through it, you know? Um, and they do, they, they work through it. It's so cute to watch them work through it. Cause they get it. And they're like, I got it. You know, in terms of like, um, talking about it. So when I do, when I'm not talking about policy, I talk about it. Right. If I'm talking about social issues, you know, I don't want to bring my own personal stuff into it unless it's like, this is my personal story that connects directly to the issue I'm talking about, I'll bring in me, right? Um, but when I'm doing, you know, podcasts like this or, you know, speaking to some kids, I guess the first thing I lead with, I want to set the tone um, for people uh, that, um, you know, it's a part of who I am. I'm not ashamed of it at all. Like, I I lean into it, you know? Um, you know, hey, it's it's got me a few dates. So it's, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. it's definitely something I lean into. I, but I, I would tell all people this, and I think that we live in a world where, like, our imperfections somehow give us this sense of insecurity, but our imperfections are the very thing that makes us unique. And for me, it is, like, my bushy eyebrows, my big forehead, you know, my stutter. Like, these are the things that are my unique identifiers, you know, and that makes me special. I mean, we um, have a very slight chance of coming into this earth. Like I think Neil deGrasse talks about it. He's like one in trillion, one trillion chance of getting here. And we got here, we made it. Like out of everybody who could have made it throughout history, 
we get a chance to play this game. You know, I am a unique specimen. Everyone who stutters are very, 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 very unique people, right? That's just something to that. And I hold that close because I'm like, yo, not everybody's like me, you know? <laughs> like, not everybody's like me. You don't have what I have, mm-hmm. you know? I have what you have, right? I can speak, right? But you don't have what I have. And that makes me special. You don't have the stutter. You don't have the bushy eyebrows. You don't have the forehead. Like, and that makes me who I am. And I'm very confident in that. Um, because for me, you know, that's my mark. You know, um, oh, Jay had a stuttering problem. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's me. Like, yes, I do. Um, and it gives me a sense of pride to be a part of this community that is very close, like it's very small. Um, and, and, you know, you got to win the lottery to be a part of it. And you mentioned your multiple identities um, just now. And intersectionality is one of the biggest themes we have here on Proud Stutter. And so I'm wondering if you can talk more about your identities and how they intersect and how you've kind of, how you hold those identities. Yeah, I mean, it's mutually exclusive. You know, it's mutual. For me, it's who I am. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I think that at times there is, it's hard to have, walk around with a felony and people know. Like I am the, you know, I, I, it's, a lot of people have the benefit of folks not knowing. I don't. Right? It's like, oh, Jay, you're the guy with the felony that talks about felonies, right? So I don't have that. It's, it's, you know, it's in my bio. It's, it's, you know, I, I'm. Mm-hmm. So I don't have that luxury of hiding it. You know, I live with it. You know, I live with the consequences, and I live with the, the reality that people know because uh, I wear, you know, like a. You know, like it's my brand. So, um, and then, and then, like. So there is a stigma there that I deal with, right? And then there's like this other thing around stuttering, which I, I, and for me, it, it could be, it could create levels of insecurity, but because I just, you know, I, I, I got, it's a part of me now. And I'm like, I, it's like a sense of pride now. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't stop me. Um, you know, it used to, it used to make me insecure in like, you know, my relationships and, you know, my work and, you know, people may feel some kind of way if I'm stuttering on a Zoom call or a conference call or, you know, um, I do get nervous around it, but I put in fail safes where it's like, hey, if I, if it comes up, then you're going to get a lecture around stuttering <laughs> and it's going to be a very good lecture. You're going to be inspired by it. I guarantee you. And you're going to want to lean into this work, right? So, I just put in a fail safe. And so it's the same thing with records, right? It's like, if, if I lean into that identity, cause there's no eggshells with me, there's no, you know, any secrets with me. So I'm gonna lean into that identity. I'm gonna tell you, hey, I have a felony and here's what's happening with me. If people, if, the, if, if folks know I stutter, it's like, I'm gonna lean into that. Hey, you know, here go the stats on that. Um, and, 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 you know, um, so I, I, I tend to, again, because I practice stoicism, I tend to think, take things as they come and respond to them in a, in a very positive and advantageous way. So that's my identity, both stuttering and having a record. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
So I'm curious, Jay, about, because uh, I love your work on policy and stuff, and obviously we need to lean into that heavily, right? Uh, I'm curious if you see any uh, future in some policy work around the school to prison pipeline regarding, you know, kids who actually like get ostracized because of either their stuttering or any other thing that they go through, because that's one of the biggest issues that we have right here in the Oakland School District. We have a lot of high suspension rates, you know, and expulsions, you know, because some teachers feel that they can't manage, you know, certain students, but some of those students can't advocate for themselves appropriately, whether it's because of a stutter or some other thing that they see as a deficiency in the school district. Yeah, I think there's 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 three things that I I feel like um, we could focus on. And I think um, incorporating more funding for social emotional learning, it sounds gooey, but in reality, it works. We're all on a spectrum of our social emotional journey. And um, we don't talk about it in terms of kids. Like these are kids. These are children. Their brains are not fully developed. And I know that's a talking point that people use and others say, well, that's excuse for behavior. It is absolutely not. This is brain science here. And folks' emotions, these kids' emotions, um, well, their brains and their synopsis are mixing with new emotions that they're just learning how to deal with, right? So just imagine, like, their journey. They were children, right? And now they are going, like, they hit, they got hit with testosterone and estrogen, you know, 12, 13. And then a year or two later, they're navigating this new relationship they have with the world, they're navigating a new relationship they have with their parents. They're seeing their parents in a, a different light. Their parent, if, if their parents are first-time parents, they're dealing with this human that they're like, but you were just a baby yesterday, right? And then they're going into these schools that are not taking none of that into account. None of that. Mm -hmm. None of the brain science and the social-emotional development is happening in these children. And so mm -hmm. we're expecting these children to sit down and listen to something that they're like, this is not dealing with what I'm feeling right now. Mm -hmm. And we're like, well, we don't care how you feel. We care what you think. And it's like, well, actually, how I'm feeling is has a lot more to do with how I'm thinking than the other way around. Mm -hmm. How I'm thinking has nothing to do with how I'm feeling. How I'm feeling has everything to do with how I'm thinking. If I wake up and I'm, and I'm hungry, my thought process is going to be a little slower because I'm freaking hungry, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're not, we have to deal with the social emotional aspect of education in a very big way. And there are um, um, preschools that are dealing with that on the front end, you know, because when those synapses are being built between the ages of like two and five, it is very important to deal with social emotional learning. I think when, you know, between the ages of 12 and 16, if we do that again, like really focused on middle schoolers transiting into high school and their social emotional state, all those mm -hmm. hormones are firing mm -hmm. off. And we're mm -hmm. dealing with like, hey, man, how are you feeling? How are you? And then mm -hmm. incorporate counseling in a very intentional way. Mm -hmm. You will see the trajectory in high school change dramatically. But we don't deal with that turn of like, those kids are in a turn. They're going from mm -hmm. babies to like young adults. And it's like, we're not dealing with that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, well, parents, you deal with it. Well, they have, they're at school most of their days. Yeah. The parents only see them for probably like a fifth of the day. Right? So it's eight hours of sleep. It's eight hours in school and then eight hours in home. How much time do you think the parents have to actually parent? So who is like, so who is responsible for the development of these children? 
right? And like, so I, I, I know we, we always put it on the parent. Put it on the parents. The parents, it, it, it's at home. But these kids aren't at home most of their life. These kids are at school. They're in the government's hands, right? And so we have to think about how do we deal with that term? And we don't, we don't really think about that. And I think we need to flood these middle schools with counselors, right? Um, that are trained in social emotional learning. I, I think that'll go like, you know, that'll transform the exposure. And and then you don't have to do it for everyone, just the folks who mm -hmm. actually really need it, you know, mm -hmm. and are showing signs of instability in that regard. That's thing one. Thing two, I think, you know, um, uh, just like there are whole person care models in, mm -hmm. you know, substance abuse and mental health, mm -hmm. um, uh, 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 I think there need to be whole family models when it when it comes to um, households who are struggling with these children who may be going down a wrong path. Um, and the reason I say that is because our social safety nets do not take into account entire households; they take into account the person. Right? You know, look at our um, our the crime response bureaucracy, the justice system, right? It only takes into account one person. It's like, oh, well, you committed this crime and that's it. What environment did that person come from? I want to know, right? So say, if for instance, on a whole different scale, right? If you see a cockroach in your house, right? You kill a cockroach. You see another cockroach in your house. You kill that cockroach. You see another cockroach. At some moment in time, you're going to be like, yo, where are these cockroaches coming from? Right? And there is a problem there. There is a problem there, right? Same thing with ants, same thing with termites, same thing with like, you know, like when you have abnormalities that are happening in any given ecosystem and you're not dealing with the root causes of the abnormalities, you're going to have systemic problems that last throughout. And if your response is just, I'm going to keep killing these cockroaches, keep killing these ants, keep killing these termites, right? Then you, you like, you're that's just going to grow and it's going to rot your whole house out. And you're like, well, well what the hell happened? Right, because you're not dealing with the root causes of it. And so I think like putting into the context of humans, you know, like there are abnormalities that are happening in our society. When you see mass homelessness, when you see truancy, when you see those those aren't symptoms of something of that one person, those are symptoms of those are symptoms of an ecosystem that is fundamentally flawed. And you need to go into those ecosystems and say, hey, how can we support that entire ecosystem? You know, it's the same thing with, you know, climate change. It's not just, oh, let's just fix the trees. There is an ecosystem problem that we are, that we have to address, right? And so that's the, that's the thing that I think when we look at whole family care, it is important for people to look at whole family care when we're talking about um, truancy rates or expulsion rates, you know, and not to criminalize the parents, but to say, hey, what do you actually need at home? How how can we support your, you know, your household ecosystem to better support uh, the leadership of your kid? That's thing two. Thing three. Last thing on this is, you know, I think that um, we put more stock into other parts of our society than we put into our education system. That's just, you know, hands down. I know we spend a lot of money on education, but are we spending the money in the right ways? Right. The reason we have um, successful, so I, I know people, you know, say what they want to say about our healthcare system. Yes, it's expensive and all of that, but we have some of the best doctors in the world, right? 
we have some of the best surgeons in the world, right? Like in the world, these surgeons are incredible, incredible. Like, listen, how, like, we're splitting, you know, babies who are stuck together apart. That is insane to me, right? They're carving out tumors. They're saving lives on a daily basis. They're doing God's work. They're doing like miracles. They're performing miracles. And the reason is because the structure there, the compensation structure there, mm-hmm. right? You're getting the best. Of the best. Mm-hmm. You're getting people who are dedicated to it. And they're dedicated to it because they're getting paid well, and they don't have to worry about anything else. They're focused on being a surgeon. They don't have to worry about home life. Just imagine if surgeons got paid $100,000 a year. They're going to be thinking about mortgage, right? They're mm-hmm. going to be thinking about I don't want the surgeon to be thinking about anything else but operating on my, you know what I mean? But teachers, we force teachers to have to deal with, like, economic issues. We're paying them less than $100,000 a year. Our future, they are shaping the future and the fabric of this nation. And and we're just like, oh, well, teachers are, you know, they, they're, 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 um, <laughs> They're spoiled or, you know, their unions or tenures. Like, listen, pay teachers more, hands down, pay them more. They are worth every penny, every dollar that we spend on teachers. You pay teachers a lot more, right? Like, I guarantee you teachers going to be like, man, feel so appreciated and seen. In this country, teachers do not feel appreciated and seen at all. They don't. They don't. And you know, like we don't appreciate and see teachers and that's a big problem. And so I think if you do those two, those three things, one, you know, in middle schools, flood those middle schools with um, counselors that are focused on the social, uh, um, uh, emotional l- uh, learning of these children who are coming into adulthood, that'd be huge. Two, you do a whole family approach for folks um, who fall through the cracks, right? Looking at the family ecosystem as opposed to just the individual. And not with a criminalization or punishment lens, but a more of a, you know, how do we support you and have a safety net for the entire family? And then three, you pay teachers more and value te- teachers more. I think you'll see expulsion rates and suspension rates drop dramatically. Yeah, no, those are great ideas. You know, we should start pushing that policy. Yeah, yeah. So there is, so, and so like in Jersey, they do it for, you know, you, you start, you start to see this a lot more. But man, listen, I mean, this is what I be talking about when I talk about the budgets, right? Like, like the money that we spend, the tax, there's only a like there's only a, a finite amount of resources in state and um, county and local budgets. There's only a finite amount of resources because the taxes going in, that and then the federal grants and all that stuff and the state, there's only a finite amount of resources. And that stuff is cut up every single year. It's cut up, right? Teachers get a portion of it, like education get a portion of it, the justice system gets a portion of it, the health department, the senator, everyone gets their portion. And all these government departments are like, listen, we need more money, right? And when there's like in tough times, right, right now in California, they're talking about cutting, right? And people are like, you know, well, we need to cut spending. Well, where are you going to cut from? We'll cut from education, cut from here, cut from there. But no one ever talks about cutting the justice system. And the one time we talked about cutting the justice system in 2020, it got demonized as like a abolition, right? It was like, well, we need to defund the police. Oh, we can't. De- we need the. We need the cops. We need the cops. So we funded the cops, and crime went up. Right? We pump more money into police budgets, and crime is going up. And they're and they're saying we need to pump more money into the police budgets. I'm like, at what moment in time? do we really have a conversation around the prioritization 
of our tax dollars. That's what it boils down to. Mm -hmm. We depend on government bureaucracy to deal with education, to deal with safety, to deal with health, to deal with mental health, to deal with roads, right? We depend on the government to deal with those things. That was the that was the deal that was cut in the Declaration of Independence. That was the deal that was cut in the American Constitution. You know, like you know, the, like the government will provide safety and infrastructure, and the citizens will pay taxes into that. And we are given a certain set of rights, right? Um, that 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 correspond with that. And we have a set of law that we can't break within those confines of our rights. That's the American system. But when those things start to break down and we're not seeing a return on our investment, we have to begin to ask ourselves a question, how do we change those systems? And that's where you get people like me, where it's like, this does not make sense. Uh, California was spending $10 billion 10 years ago on prisons. There were 190,000 people in prisons. We reduced that to less than 100,000 people now, but we're spending $14 billion on prisons. How does that make sense? Less people in prison, more money on prisons. That does not make any sense, right? And so we have to like what, that that four billion dollar a year, you know, um, increase could go to education, right? But <laughs> you know, it's stuck up in this system that um, is paying for all these infrastructure costs, all these hard costs, you know, facility mm -hmm. costs, pensions, you know, like lights, right? All the healthcare, like all this stuff is it's being paid for. So when we're saying pay teachers more, they're like, where's the money going to come from? I know exactly where the money can come from. Wow. So much amazing information. I feel like I am in grad school again, which I really miss because I just miss learning every day about things that I just am not really aware of. So thank you, Jay, for um, for educating me on, on all those ways we can um, improve our society. Um, so before we end here, I did want to just give space for both Jay and Jesse to talk more about their work because it's just so important. And I am just such a big fan of what they're both doing. And I think, um, we can all learn from them even more so than what we just learned about during this interview. So Jay, can you go first and just talk about your work? And then Jesse will go with you next. Yeah. So um, just starting off, I, I, I'm the CEO of one of the largest multi-state advocacy organizations in the country that's looking to replace um, wasteful uh, uh, prison spending on upstream solutions that not only make communities safer, but support victims of crime, support rehabilitation, and helps local and state governments save money in the process. Um, you know, and we do that by organizing um, um, crime victims and crime survivors around the country. We have a network of over 200,000 um, victims of crime, uh, and about 49 chapters. And we also organize people who've been through the system, who moved on, and are trying just to take care of themselves and their families. Uh, but faced 40,000 legal restrictions that are, that are called collateral consequences. And we have over 200,000 members on that side. And these members work um, um, to identify problems in their state uh, that could be fixed with policy solutions. Uh, and, you know, they give them to us and we turn those into bills and find champions in these states 
uh, to turn those bills into laws and then work with agencies uh, locally to implement those laws. And we've been able to pass 93 of those laws in the last 10 years. Um, we've been able to uh, uh, take $3 billion, over $3 billion from wasteful prison spending and put it into upstream solutions like victim services, uh, mental health support, workforce development, reentry, and education. Um, we've affected over 8 million people with our expungement legislation um, in multiple states. We've provided access to over a million victims of crime with uh, victims uh, compensation. Um, and um, one of our uh, brick and mortar solutions are called trauma recovery centers where anyone can go um, to get trauma recovery, can get counseling in communities, which we know are, is stigmatized. Um, and we grew those from one to over 30 um, across the country. And so um, we are a small but scrappy staff um, and, and we've been successful because we are um, um, nonpartisan. Um, we believe that um, safety is not just the absence of crime, but it's the presence of well-being. Thank you, Jay. And Jesse, you want to go next? Of course. So my name is Jesse Vasquez, and I'm currently the executive director for Friends of San Quentin News. We're currently in a rebranding phase, uh, starting off with the Pollen Initiative, uh, which is going to be our national model to take the San Quentin Media Center model uh, nationwide. And what we do is basically we teach the incarcerated the tools of journalism, media production, filmmaking, and photography. And that's so that they can actually have, you know, their own platforms to highlight their stories and the issues that revolve around our communities. Historically, the incarcerated communities have been marginalized and disenfranchised legally and discriminated against legally uh, in this country. And for us, it's part of our, you know, necessity to be a part of the democratic process, you know, to be involved in the civic engagement. You know, we actually need platforms that represent our voices in our communities especially considering that in our country, our writings are relegated to just op-ed sections in the newspapers instead of you know, considering it just mainstream media like everybody else. I once heard that you know, everybody has the freedom of speech but not the freedom of reach. And that's one of the things that you know, influences a lot of policy in our states. In California, San Quentin News has you know, been instrumental in helping to highlight solitary confinement you know, the shoe terms back in when the hunger strikes came up in 20, uh, 2011, you know, we were uh, just highlighting those stories, trying to make a difference. And for us, it's not so much about trying to shift the narrative, right? Because we're just trying to balance the story. For the longest time, the incarcerated don't get their story. You get to tell the story from the DA's perspective, from the police reports perspective, from the probation officer's uh, perspective, but never from the incarcerated perspective. And I believe that what we're trying to do right now is we're trying to level the playing field by giving the incarcerated a voice and a platform. So that's what we're currently doing. Okay. So how amazing are these two guys? Like, I'm just, I'm so happy we were able to do this and I can't wait to have you both on again because we're definitely going to do that. So yeah, thank you both so much for spending, I think it's been like over an hour to together. So thank you both so much. And I will see you both soon, I hope. And that's it for this episode of Proud Stutter. This episode of Proud Stutter was produced and edited by me, Maya Chupkov. Our music was composed by Augusto Denise. And our artwork 
by Mara Ezekiel and Noah Chupkov. If you have an idea or want to be part of a future episode, visit us at www.proudstutter.com. And if you like the show, you can leave us a review wherever you are listening to this podcast. Want to leave us a voicemail? Check out our show notes for the, the number to call in. More importantly, tell your friends to listen too. Until we meet again, thanks for listening. Be proud and be you.